Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au.
3CR855AM, 3CR Digital, 3cr.org.au and 3CR On Demand. Out of the Pan, hosted by me, Sally Golden, and I use the pronouns she, her, first broadcasting live noon through one every Sunday afternoon Australian Eastern Standard Time. 3CR broadcasts from the lands of the Kulin Nations and we pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Acknowledge any Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander people tuning in by whatever means and acknowledge that all the lands were stolen and never ceded. Um, opened up today with um, um, the th- breaking point and one of a kind, the theme for Rob Van Dam and in my best WWE mode, RVD, um, because we had to. And my guest, who I'll introduce in a moment, is one of a kind and has, um, well, um, had a response to the obligatory World Wrestling Entertainment um, reference. That was from when it was WWF and the album Forcible Entry from around the turn of the century. If you want to get in touch with the show to ask me or my guest, um, whom I will introduce in a couple of seconds, um, anything, there's lots of ways to do it. You can um, email out of the pan 855 at gmail.com. You can SMS 6145 215. You can tweet at Sal Gold said so, and that's the bottom line. And you can look for posts on Facebook on my page, Sally Goldner, and on Out of the Pan 3CR 855 AM Melbourne. And remember, any opinions on the program that I express are my own and not those of any organisation with which I am associated past, present, but I can't talk about the future. And don't think there'd be anything triggering on the show today, but if there is, um, switchboard on one 800 184527 is there, and other numbers will mention as needed. Now to introduce my guest. Um, as part of our ongoing series on queer leadership, um, and I'm really excited to have this person um, in today. Um, to me, they are a pioneering queer leader doing great work and have done for a long time. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the 3CR studios and also my first live guest in um, 16 months, which is doubly exciting, Dianne Carson. Dianne, welcome to the 3CR studios. Hi, Sal. Thanks for having me. An absolute pleasure. And as we like to do, um, as I said, my pronouns are she, her. Um, I'd like to respect your gender. Can I just check in with which pronouns you use, if any? She, her as well. Thanks. We respect all gender identities and expressions on this program. Um, leadership, how do we pack this into the remaining 53 minutes? We're going to try because we can do anything. We're queer, we're here and no fear or something like that. The thing that I like to start with is, I mean, you know, um, all of us have journeys in, we'll say, use the shorthand queerdom, whether that covers things like gender identity, expression, sexual romantic um, orientation, many other things. I'd like to perhaps start by talking about your journeys of queerdom, but also linking them to um, forms of leadership and what you learnt mm-hmm. along the way, just um, to get to um, where you know the point you are now on this day, on the fourth of July, two thousand and twenty twenty-one. Fantastic! So, um, queer queer is certainly my identity now, but like everybody, I, I've had a real journey in this. I didn't come out until I was thirty-six which is, you know, um, I think I was labelled at the time a latent-life lesbian, um, <laughs> like so many people who came out later. I came out as bisexual first because, you know, how could I say that I was a lesbian if I had been married to a man for so many years? Uh, and then I took on, the, uh, took on the label for myself of lesbian. But um, 
in the years since this idea of queerness has just grown and for me and um, and I've really embraced it because uh, I see it as political, I see it as all-encompassing, I see it as a space where we don't exclude uh, people. So, you know, just this real inclusiveness that, um, you know, for me is about queerness. And I think when you ask about leadership, you know, that is also the basis of the work that I do as well about being inclusive, not exclusive and, and looking for a space that we can bring everybody together. Yep. So there, there's a, it's a, that's a, a great overview. I mean, 36, I mean, you know, um, I'm not going to ask your age and, unless you want to tell it. Um, I'm 51, Sally. 51. So, you know, sort of in that era, so mental arithmetic, you know, 1970, I mean, you, like me, grew up in a time where there was no internet, there were telegrams and it wasn't a nasty right-wing app, um, that sort of thing. So, you know, 36 is still a relatively long time to, mm. um, you know, sort of think or try to believe, force yourself into boxes that don't work for um, gender, sexuality, similar. Um, you know, sort of that would have, was there, were there challenges in that, I suppose? You know, and if so, what were they? Well, I think um, absolutely there were. And, and like so many people, when I look back on my life, there were plenty of points where I could have had a realisation. But growing up, I grew up in a world that was just so heteronormative. Um, and, the, you know, the narratives that surrounded me didn't really allow me to imagine a different future. And I think in the work, and I'm sure that we're going to talk about this, but yep. the work that um, I do now is to, um, you know, so very much allow children and young people to have representations of themselves so that they can imagine their futures. Yeah, so so needed. I mean, you know, that's the thing that perhaps the uh, up to, we'll say, about our generation and another 25 years beyond and then that wacky thing called internet came in that people might be listening to us on, you know, sort of, um, you know, there was it was hard to find things out and now it is there and it can be navigated well, which of course is a challenge in itself. We might talk about that in due course. Um, you know, it does make it easy so you can get on to being your authentic self with some appropriate assistance earlier on. But the thing is, can I ask also where where did you grow up um, geographically? Did that play a part in anything? Uh, I grew up everywhere. Ah. <laughs> Uh, I, I like to say that I was dragged up all over the world, that, <laughs> <laughs> that I wasn't brought up. Uh, born in South Africa, lived in uh, Israel and London and Australia and different places in Australia, eventually settled in Melbourne with my family. Uh, does it? Does the geography have any impact? Um, not really, but, you know, obviously the culture that I grew up in, my family culture was just so... Uh, heteronormative and and um, particularly my father, uh, like a lot of people, placed my gender a lot. So I remember, uh. you know, when I got my hair cut at 16 years of age, you know, my dad didn't speak to me for two weeks and went, oh, I have a daughter, not a son, and, um, uh. and, and really just drove home that uh, I needed to have long hair. I wasn't, you know, this was a, a rule. I wasn't allowed to wear pants or jeans in my teenage years. So I had to perform femininity in a way that, um, you know, that my dad found acceptable. Mm. And, well, 
I'm almost shuddering to ask, but um, did you have to wear high heels all the time, (laughs) medium heels? Uh, uh, Not from my family, but I do recall my my first corporate job I I worked in, the organiser, and this makes me sound really old, but I'm, you know, this was in the 90s, Mm. the company that I worked for, the policy, the clothing policy was that the women had to wear skirt suits, yeah, pantyhose and heels. Oh, oh dear. Uh, yeah. Well, um, you know, there's a few things that come to mind there. Um, as you were, as you were talking, um, I last had a full-time job in the corporate sector also in the eighties and nineties, but as my you know, trying to be my earlier in inverted commas male self and inverted commas. And it was, yes, suits and ties. And even into the 80s, some of the accountants were still wearing brown pinstripe suits, which probably shouldn't say that around lunchtime. Um, But, yeah, it was like that. That was the whole thing that, as a friend of mine calls it, money penny wear. Um, And, you know, incredibly uncomfortable. And, of course, there's that old saying, if high heels are so great, why don't men wear them more often? All that sort of stuff, particularly stilettos. And... Um, it's still there. I remember only a few years ago, a friend of mine posted an ad on, um, you know, or when, when she, I say she posted, she saw an ad which she reposted about, you know, um, a receptionist job and you had to have all that and no visible tattoos and all the rest of it. And I'm just thinking, you know, which century are we in? And then I didn't even realise that they were assuming the receptionist was someone who would, will say in our language, most likely identifies female. Why mm. not a male or a non-binary person? So, yeah, it's still there. I, I have to say, though, also, I... I didn't know you'd ever worked in a corporate setting. I I mean, I've known you now for about 10 or 15 years. Um, And knowing you now and knowing that I will come to this, you know, I see the authentic Diane Carson by a long way. I I have to admit I can't imagine you in a corporate setting, Um, maybe the the, the money penny suit, but, um, you know, sort of that must have been almost just as frustrating as, you know, the haircut stuff. It was... was, um... I mean, it was certainly a particular time in my life, but even even then, uh, you know, I had so many questions. I worked in an industry that was predominantly female and I had, uh, you know, a team of 16 people um, that I managed and I remember that I hired a guy and I, there was a lot of pressure from senior management to justify why I wasn't hiring a woman in that role. Mm. Oh, okay. So, uh, oh God, that must have been bewil- some of these yeah. things sound incredibly bewildering. Yeah, mm. so- sounds archaic. Yeah. So you were in the corporate sector, mm-hmm. and what you know, um, you know, I'll ask two questions. One, what sort of things did you learn about what to do, and I'll say what not to do in terms of leadership, um, which may have sound sound obvious, but also what was there a catalyst in then that said I've got to get out of here. Uh, so the, the catalyst for getting out was um, that I had babies and I uh, I negotiated with my employer that I would do work from home uh, in the process of returning to the workforce after having my first baby. And on the day I was due to go on mat leave, mm-hmm. my employer said to me, uh, no, sorry, we can't have you working from home uh, because insurance 
policies, yada, yada, which is ridiculous to think about now, right? Over the last year, everyone working from home. Uh, And so you need to make a decision about whether to come back straight away or whether to resign. Um, I know. I know. Um, So that was the catalyst for me leaving. Uh, But obviously moving into different roles now and, and post sort of raising small children, um, it absolutely has given me spaces for reflection on what leadership can and can't be, and uh, and the the bullying that occurs in the corporate sector, the way people are pushed out of roles or not given opportunities or have the information withheld from them that will allow them to grow, uh, is something that I never ever wanted to replicate. Not given information, yeah, familiar theme, um, not given information, not communicated, unilateral decisions forced on people, all that sort of thing. Mm. And it just, you know, it sounds, you know, so 180 degrees around from common sense when we use those sorts of words, yet it just seems to happen. And, you know, it also comes across to me in big inverted commas as a very male slash masculine um, end inverted commas um, form of well, I think I'll put after leadership here, sick, SIC. You know, it's just, it just, yet it seems to happen. <laughs> yeah, and even though it was a, a female-led organisation and it was a female-dominated industry, uh, it was very much replicating, um, you know, masculine leadership and, mm. and um, you know, it was very much, uh, you know, shoulder-padded suit type of mentality. Yeah, I'm going to make a note to come back to that one. So... We're coming through from, I think, the now the 90s into the 2000s, yeah. it's sounding like. And so after you, you know, uh, you know, work, I'm sorry to use four-letter words on air, listeners, but work <laughs> is one of them. You, you know, we need to do it. We've got food and to buy and housing to pay for and if you're, um, and caffeine of various diverse forms, um, coffee over here, tea over on your side of the radio studio. But um, um, what did you do after that when you were, you know, getting back to work again? Mm. So, so Sally, um, that was a really interesting um, period. I was a stay-at-home parent for seven years. I was uh, in a heterosexual marriage and um, married to a man who, you know, ensured financial security for our family. And uh, and then at the end of that marriage, experienced family violence. Uh, went from a very secure financial, um, you know, middle-class life to then having to go back and, um, and study and raise children on my own and, and face financial insecurity. And coming out of study, I realised that I was almost unemployable because I'd been out of the workforce for seven years. Yeah. Um, I had gone from a space of... Uh, getting every single job that I ever applied for to not even getting interviews and and being um, a, a woman in my mid-30s, a white woman, an educated white woman in my mid-30s um, who couldn't, couldn't get a foot in the door. And that just sort of threw me back on the seat of my pants and went, you know, how, how are things set up that – uh, with all of my advantages, I can't even get an interview because on paper there's a gap in my resume because I've been raising children. 
Yeah, so that would have been more reflection, um, you know, sort of, um, you know, and um, of course, you know, so overwhelmingly, you know, affects affects women, um, mm. and though, um, but anyone, you know, caring, raising children, those sorts of things, very or much in caring roles, or caring, caring for yeah. family members who have a disability, or you know, for elderly parents, like anyone who has chosen to contribute to society in an unpaid role. Mm. Um, you know, and then wants to get back into paid employment, faces that that sort of disadvantage. Yep. Now I should just um, mention that if any mention of family violence, um, including intimate partner violence, is upsetting, once again the number for Switchboard one eight hundred one eight four five two seven, and also um, Q Life on one eight hundred five four two eight four seven um, as well for any listeners um, needing those services. Um, so, you know, there you were, you were out of a job and you had to, you know, get out of the relationship, the heterosexual marriage as well, um, which would have been A, traumatic and B, how did you manage to sort of cope through that time, for lack of a better word, what kept you sort of going on and what must have been, you know, with two parts of your life falling down and probably where you lived as well, I would guess as well, Mm -hmm. well, three big parts. Yeah. What kept you going? That's a really good question. Um, obviously, my children. Uh, mm. I, I was I was the adult responsible for keeping their lives together while all of the parts of their lives were falling apart. They weren't seeing their dad so much. Uh, we had to move house. They had to move schools. We had to move away from their friends and support networks. Mm. Uh, so obviously, um, you know, that was a major part. But also uh, a friend of mine... Um, separated from her husband at the same time and we were both really uh we both had dreams you know because everybody has a dream we both had dreams we both were creative we both um had you know particular skills and we both had small children and I applied to go back to uni to study writing and editing because I'd always wanted to be a writer and that was my dream And she got a job um, that would allow her to work during school hours and, um, you know, and it was a nice, secure job. And I think in that space I just went, I've got a choice here. I can either choose security and, um, and but perhaps something that is just not fulfilling or I can chase my dream and if I chase my dream because I have to provide security for my family, I just actually have to make it work. And that's what I did. I think um, here we are at about 23 minutes past 12. I've, I've got my first headline quote for the, for the day with that one. That's, I mean, wow, I'm just having a huge light bulb, fuzzy, tingly moment hearing that. And that's a bolt, you know, it's a, it's, well, it's a decision you needed to make from your heart, but it also must have involved some courage yeah. and some determination and some resilience and speaks volumes about, well, that's leadership. You look deep inside yourself and we have to lead ourselves. Totally. Um, and that would have been you know, a really important thing to do. And I think the other thing that, of course, comes out of it, connection with your friend and the family, and I'm, no doubt you're able to perhaps share some you know, um, childcare arrangements or something of some sort have, or, or no, not? Not so much, no. Not so much, no. okay. But there was at least connection and support in that way, you know, yeah. peer support, if we can put it that way, which was something. 
So now we're getting in from the end of the 2000s to the 2010s, (laughs) which is, um, you know, and I I should have... I feel like I'm in an episode of This Is Your Life. (laughs) Who's going to pop out, Sally? (laughs) Ah, well, some some things will pop out because I was going to say it, actually. That's at about the point when you were studying when we met. Yes, that's Um, right. And, um, you know, here is a voice from your past. Well, I'm right here <laughs> in the present. Uh, and I should have mentioned at the start, I have, um, will come to where you work soon. And yep. I have recently done some paid work for you just so there's no conflict of interest. And so there you were doing creative writing. Yes. Um, and so I'm going to tie that back to your, you know, your ongoing journey, but also your journey in Queerdom. Yes. Um, well, what was happening now at this time? Because by, by about this time, um, if I'm doing the mental arithmetic, you will have begun to get a stronger realisation of your sense of self in those areas. Yeah, I came out the, the second my marriage ended, absolutely. Ah, okay. um, and, and I was fortunate enough to go to uni three months after the separation and my whole world opened up. So I, I was out, um, I was, you know, dipping into the queer scene meeting people, you know, in queer spaces. Um, uh, and then I was at uni with these people who were just so inspiring. You know, they were creative, they were smart, they were um, really diverse experiences and backgrounds and, and uh, you know, the space for thinking and growing in that was just extraordinary and I, I, it felt like I was coming home. Uh, It felt like, you know, I I tried to explain it to my mum at that particular stage and I said, I feel like until now I've had access to movies and that's exciting and that's beautiful, but now I've got access to Technicolor movies, not just black and white movies. Oh, second quote. (laughs) (laughs) Queer Technicolor, we love it. And, you know, at the start, um, you you know, of the show today, you said, you know, you'd, you'd originally thought that you were a lesbian and now you use the term queer. Mm. How then over the last, say, 10 or 11 years or so has that evolved you get where you get to a point where lesbian, you know, yeah, we sometimes have to pick a label first and it doesn't quite work, whichever one it was, by then lesbian. What's, what's evolved since that, um, you know, you sort of think, no, I just don't fit that sort of um, particular label. And, of course, everyone's label at any time is valid, but yeah. sometimes we find a better one. What happened there? A number of different things. The first thing is that um, while I have not dated a cis man since the end of my marriage, um, I have dated um, trans guys, non-binary people. Uh, so, you know, the label of lesbian doesn't, you know, quite fit with the, um, you know, the identities of the people I've dated. Uh, but to me, it's to me, the term queer, like I said before, is more inclusive, but it's also feels really political. It's it's taking a, a stand and a statement uh, around, you know, my my politics, not just my sexuality. Yeah, well, that that's really important. I wanted to ask that because we've had an SMS in, um, you know, just to re- you know reinforce that. Yes, some people, you know, sort of the first thing when they think, oh, I'm not heterosexual, they go by and then something mm. else, something else, because our guest, um, our listener, sorry, Nigel, has said that, um, you know, not all of us, you know, a great number of us, I'll quote here, great number of us aren't just using bisexual as a stepping stone to lesbian or gay, which of course is Absolutely. true. Absolutely, yeah. But your journey was that sort of, you know, um, try, you know, sort of park here for a bit, 
you know, move on, park somewhere else, and now you've found uh, the right spot. Yeah, and for me, uh, and, and, and thanks, um, Nigel. Yeah, yeah, thank you, Nigel, because that's absolutely true. Um, it just wasn't my experience, but um, uh, for me, I only used the word bisexual. I didn't ever feel that I was bisexual. I only used it because I actually didn't think that other people would feel it would be legitimate um, for me to suddenly be call- calling myself gay having just come out of a 12-year marriage. Ah, yeah. So yeah. it was actually about other people's opinions rather than my own um, internal sense. That kind, of, that kind of makes sense. And so you were sort of, you know, in a way it was sort of like, well, that's sort of the best word I had at the time and, you know, in a way. And, you know, and then, you know, you didn't want to be with cis men anymore, so it was lesbian. So it is that a common thing that people who will say are multi-gender attracted, yep. if I can put it that way, go through. You know, I've heard many a um, story of, you know, sort of, you know, people who end up under the multi-gender attraction broad brushstroke, whether they use bi, queer, pan, any label, of course, no label at all. And it's like, oh, it's sort of the the bouncing back and forth. Am I gay slash lesbian? Am I heterosexual? And then, you know, the word clicks in and it's like, mm. oh, I'm, no, I'm this me. is who I am. Yeah. yeah. So you got the queer stuff sorted out, and I just, without in, you know, totally affirming the difficult stuff you went through at the end of your heterosexual marriage, I do want to say now, just to um, put this part of it, um, you know, you're in a wonderful relationship An now. An extraordinary relationship, yeah. Yeah, which is really, really awesome, and I think gives, you know, um, says to people, perhaps anyone of any sexuality, gender, who has to sadly leave a relationship that is not working, outright abusive, you know, if you want a relationship, yes, there is pain, but you can find someone. And, you know, I say very warmly, I, I've met you the person you're with now and they are, you know, just a lovely human, full stop. Um, I, I'm, I feel extraordinarily um, lucky. Uh, we were talking uh, last night that we're coming into our fifth year now and um, and to be, you know, just over 50 and know that this is my person and this is my person for my um, latter years, uh, is just, yeah, it, it, it's so beautiful, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's good to have that someone there, and I think maybe we all, well, maybe do we need that? Not necessarily need but it's something we would really like, and perhaps maybe later in life, which, um, you know, yeah. perhaps, gosh, there's all sorts of things I've parked here, um, and I want to come back to that as well. Um, but... Um, now, leadership, you take on a particular form of leadership. So you did the creative writing course and you mm-hmm. were working. But how did you end up um, where you are now with your, your work and what do you do now? Because we want to really get to that because that is vital work that sort of begins to put in some of the things you've talked about, how people aren't given info, queers coming out late, um, and how you see that. Um, you know, you probably you've touched on this a bit already, but how that, of course, fits into leadership. Okay. Uh, so, so first, what do I do? I head up an organisation called Body Safety Australia, and we run education programs in early childhood education, primary schools, secondary schools. We work with parents, carers, teachers, educators, uh, children, young people, and and the programs are around uh, sexuality education, respect for relationships, the prevention of sexual and gendered violence. Uh, positive body image, you know, so it's it's a whole range of um, identity and well-being programs 
for young people and the people who care for them. Uh, I forgot the question, Sal. So, yeah, how does it fit into your leadership and how did, how did you get to that? How did I get there, yeah. <laughs> mm. uh, so I, um, after I finished my writing course, uh, a friend and I started up like a micro-publishing firm that published queer stories. We did that about 2010 uh, and that was fabulous and uh, and that sort of opened up a space of uh, publishing emerging writers and artists uh, in, in queer Australia, which there wasn't anything else like that at the time. There had been previously but in that space there wasn't. And then I answered an ad for an organisation to teach sex ed. Aha. Uh-huh. And it was just um, this, you know, small role to start with where mostly I was going into schools and teaching puberty education. So talking about how to use pads and tampons and deodorant and uh, and unpacking, you know, the emotional journey of puberty and, you know, and I loved it. I absolutely fell in love with that role. Mm. So that's where, that's where um, my journey is into this current space started. Okay, so it seems like you'd found a bit of a, oh, calling's a word that gets used a lot, but it sounds like Mm. it's reasonable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so you were doing that as an employee of an organisation. Yeah. And, well, um, how did then that morph into um, doing an organisation of which you're now Mm. the CEO and therefore, well, in an organisational chart sense, but obviously in other ways in a leadership position, Body Safety Australia? Uh, So I did that for a number of years and absolutely loved it, but um, I wanted to push the envelope further. Uh, You know, uh, sex ed needs to be queerer. Sex ed needs to be uh, more inclusive of people of colour. Sex ed needs to be more inclusive of people of faith, people with disabilities, First Nations people, uh, and... And I just, you know, I, I was really restless. I really felt like the sex ed that we're teaching was good and, and opened up a space for shame-free sex ed. Uh, but it really still came from that white, heteronormative, middle-class area. And I just knew that we could do better. And so after a number of years... Um, Another person, um, Whitney Yip, and I decided that we would go out on our own and just take that leap of faith. At the same time, I had been contacted by an organisation called Fairness in Religions in Schools, mm-hmm. an organisation that was uh, really lobbying hard to have religious education taken out of core class time in public schools. And they had come across these texts that were being used in New South Wales secondary mm. schools. I don't know if you remember this, Sally. Oh, rings a bell. Yeah, um, uh, that were hugely damaging. They um, they linked students to um, conversion therapy. They, uh, you know, they were really shaming of female bodies and, and female sexuality uh, they really perpetuated, um, you know, the systems under which family violence could um, exist, you know, really, really damaging. So Ferris asked me to review these books and 
I did and it hit all of the headlines and I and I realised at that point that if I was going to be courageous and speak out about the damage that was being done when we talk about young people and their agency around their sex and sexuality, uh, I needed to make sure that my views were supported by, by my employer and if I had any concerns about that, I needed to actually be my own employer. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. So, um, yeah, that's that's. Wow, there's a lot to um, lot to unpack <laughs> in your last statements there. So, you know, you, um, you know, you were, you know, and I, I do remember that. And yes, I'm certainly remember that the, um, you know, the views in those those materials that were that came up were incredibly, um, you know, well, misogynistic and, mm. um, you know, limiting of female slash femininity, and obviously, but they were hugely transphobic. They yeah. were hugely um, homophobic. Yeah. They were awful. And I'm sure they would have been bio-racing as well. Totally. Uh, um, you know, sort of that, oh, can't, can't have people attracted to more than one gender. You mm. know, goodness me. So, yeah, it would have been, they were pretty abysmal, yeah. And, um, yeah, you want, and yet there's a part of your heart, part of you listening to your inner voice going, I have to really speak out and do this my way. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And you've had to do that since because a couple of years ago, possibly a difficult topic, you faced some malarkey on um for comments made on television because you were a cis woman a woman with pink hair who said we shouldn't you know we should be asking babies consent and of course all the top the toxic masculinity control freaks out there you know how had a, um an over a pinstripe hissy fit um <laughs> or something like that um saying but but, but we can't control women and children exactly a hundred percent and you know i'm laughing at it but seriously you you know you cops as we've seen so much of and i've just actually read a report that will be released in a couple of weeks on um you know electronic um sort of abuse um, yep. um oh, i can't remember the exact term it's, it goes beyond um you know sort of steps um sexting and that sort of thing but mm. any sort of electronic online abuse and you copped that and so many women do and that would have been incredibly difficult there were you just trying to speak up for your mm. own beliefs and your own authentic self and what you believed was right and you copped a lot of tough stuff yeah 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 it was a really awful time um i i did uh i did a few interviews at the time it was the it was at a time um where uh Saxon Mullins, if people remember, uh, a really courageous young woman in New South Wales uh, had been raped and um, and there was, you know, conversations about the fact that, well, the, the guy um, didn't know that she wasn't consenting. Right. And... Uh, and I did a number of interviews on consent and this was this interview was just this little tiny... Uh, ABC News, middle of the day. I, I thought perhaps three people might watch it, and one yeah. of those would be my mum. You know, um, and and the right wing warriors got hold of this interview where I had said that this is how we teach consent to teenagers. This is how we teach consent to 10-year-olds. This is how we teach consent to four-year-olds. And even before that, we can work with parents on creating a culture of consent. So I did this interview and it was picked up. And within three days, I had 
the the threats were coming in faster than I could delete them. You know, the they were coming into my phone, they were coming into my social media, they were coming into my email, um, and they were violent and they were, you know, I, I'd never experienced such a level of vitriol or violence before and I was frightened. I was very mm. frightened and... Um, and remembering that at that time I had two teenage children, uh, a teenage daughter and um, a non-binary child as well. A lot of the threats were about my sexuality, uh, about my gender, um, and I was frightened for my children as well, you know, that these – because they were more than trolls, you know, that they would – um, find out where we lived, that they would harm my child. You know, it, it was it was awful. Yeah. Um, it. I mean, you know, no question, you know, obviously, you know, horrendous situation. So drawing on your strengths as a leader, how did you, you know, sort of deal with that situation specifically? What did you do? How did you work it through with your two children? You know, yep. sort of, um, you know, what were the things that got you through and, and what you did? I, I remember um, very recently uh, somebody said to me, I, you know, Down, we watched all of that unfold and next thing I know you're still out there doing the work. Like how did you do that? How did you just get up and do the work? And I'm like because the work has to be done, you know, and at the time people said to me, oh, well, why don't you um, dye your hair because you're so recognisable when you go out into the world. You know, why don't you dye your hair and be invisible for a while? And I'm like why do I... Like, as tempting as that is um, and as appealing as that is, um, I get to choose my visibility mm-hmm. as a white cis woman and lots of people don't get to choose their visibility. And so, you know, I I didn't feel that it fit with my values to um, to step away at that point and 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 you know basically take advantage of the fact that I get to choose so there was just no other option for me you just keep going got to plow on yep um, well not plow on um, accelerate on and just checking the messages and I think there must be some telepathy going on with one of our <laughs> awesome listeners here Mel who um, four minutes ago. Um, actually asked, hi Sally, I'd like to ask Diana how she dealt with the global interest in her diaper comment and babies. <laughs> how did it affect her work and what specifically did she learn as a result from the backlash from some prominent media outlets enjoying yeah. the show? Um, so I honestly didn't see that until after you answered, <laughs> but that's the sort of three-star yeah. vibe that we do. So thanks for your question, Mel, but I think we've got it. Um, yeah, and you know, I, I'm a bit. I'm always a bit careful about the sometimes twee saying of, that which does not kill you can oh, please um, whichever one was it was it um, uh, Nitschke? Um yeah who said uh, you know, design can only make you stronger well because yeah. it never feels that way at the time um, no and 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 you know and it's just blatantly not true um, no. you know because harm is harm um, I think it's really interesting because I'm still getting threats now you know even the the nappy things blown up again in the media recently and. Uh, in the last week, I've had probably five really horrific, violent threats come into um, my social media or email, um, and 
I think the only difference now is I I understand that like it doesn't affect me anymore, which concerns me. It concerns me that, you know, that kind of violence doesn't affect me. Mm. Um but but I have a much better understanding now that this is not about me, that this is about them, that these people yeah. are, you know, and, and mostly, you know, they're men because that's, you know, that's the way these things roll. Um, but, you know, they're sliding into my DMs or into my email. They're not saying it publicly and they're expecting me to be um, to be frightened by that and, Often I will engage and people say, you know, you should just block the trolls or, you know, mm. don't engage. And um, and often I will and I receive a number of apologies from people. But um, but recently this, this guy sent me some really, really violent messages and I just screenshot it, found all of the family members that I could find on his social media and sent it to them. And he just lost his mind and went, you leave my family out of this. I'm like, well... You know, you need to take responsibility for your actions. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, look, it's you know, it's an interesting one. And look, there is a ten. Some it's. I don't think there's an all or nothing answer on whether you should, you know, to block or engage. And I had this happen in my work once, mm. where I made comments on, you know, this show's favourite topic, all gender bathrooms, and I got <laughs> um, some guy saying. Um, you know, that, oh, it's terrible. And then you read between the lines, apparently there'd been sadly some disrespectful behaviour to young girls at his daughter's school. So he cares about his daughters. Mm. And so, you know, I said, look, I appreciate you care about your daughters, but have you thought about it this way? Maybe we need to start, you know, looking at how we can teach people to be more respectful, particularly people who misuse power in any form, including Mm. male power. And he wrote back and said, Wow, in 20 minutes I've learnt more in a lifetime than I have. So sometimes you can win. Totally. I don't want to say win. I really want to specify that. You can you know, further things by engaging. Yep. But there are some people, you know, it's the talking to a brick wall, triple, yeah. quadruple brick wall, and you're just going to bash your head against it and bleed. So, nah. Yeah. Um, you have to block and, sometimes. And some days um, you have the resilience to do it, and other days, you know, there are other priorities for your energy. Yep. So, look, absolutely agree. And I, I really admire your judgment and your courage which is the sign of a leader and I suppose that comes back to um, you know what we were saying earlier that you got bullied in the corporate sector and all the rest of it Mm. and you know sadly a horrible abusive intimate partner relationship earlier in life but now you can you know deal with it in a more we'll say nuanced or take it on its merits sort of way deal with it be in the present moment to it rather than going "Oh, oh help you know that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah, well, I think it it really helps. Um, I think a lot of the learning that I did uh, post my uh, divorce was, you know, learning about, um, you know, the systems and structures that allow for uh, power inequity and, uh, you know, and abuse. And, uh, and then when you couch it in that, then you see that this is n- not so much an individual, but, uh, you know, just somebody playing out, um, you know, something that is played out over and over and over again and so it depersonalizes it so you can then find solutions so much more easily yeah 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 uh mel's come back in with a couple more messages which also Mm -hmm. links in beautifully telepathy continues um um dion just answered my question sally what does does, um and i'll put up pop all these two at once what does dion think about grace tame and how the next generation deal with consent and male toxicity and also mel said 
Um, it speaks volumes about their own insecurities, Sally. What a great idea to expose bullying and toxicity. Um, and, you know, so I think there's some linkages there. And, of course, I'm thinking of the bravery of Brittany Higgins and yep. so many others. Um, and I'm sorry, I've forgotten the name you mentioned earlier from a few years ago. Saxon Mullins. Saxon Mullins. All these people, yep. you know, who are speaking up and that, you know, it's not – it hurts. It's painful. It's emotional labour at times. But it's going to be more for you and everyone and me and who, if we don't. So, yep, yeah, fair call. So I'm um, – yeah, you know, the main question was um, therefore about Grace Tame, but also anything that comes off that. So we we work in so many different schools in so many different demographics, and um, and what I'm finding now is young people are just so extraordinarily empowered, and they have such wise things to say in the classroom mm. um, and outside of the classroom. And they are they are taking the work that you know my generation has done and previous generations before me, and they are absolutely running with it in spaces that we never imagined could happen in schools. And and the courage that I see from young people, um, young queer people, uh, young you know cis girls in um, in secondary schools and even in primary schools to say this is not okay. Um, we won't take it. We will, you know. Um, we want to organise a school walkout. We want to, um, uh, you know, lobby for better consent education. We want accountability for sexual harassment or, you know, um, you know, sexist behaviour in schools. Like they blow me away. It's pretty awesome. I mean, you know, I think that I, I agree that there's progress. I mean, so many times as an a diversity educator on rainbow stuff and um, rainbow people. And, you know, I hear the comment from people, say, in their 50s or 60s now who are really good people but just don't know and they say, oh, I come home and my kids educate me and that sort mm. of thing. And it does feel slowly that the conversations are advancing beyond 101 in most of it, although, um, you know, I would want to acknowledge that a lot of people are still asking what's intersex, never heard the word, yeah. which I think we need to talk about as well. And also, you know, when the trolling stuff, I just I was thinking at the time also of Ginger Gorman, who's just done such awesome work there as well, and that she managed to engage after all the things she went through as well. Yeah. There were two things I wanted to pick up on before we, we've run out of time. The music sat in the CD players, <laughs> but I don't care. As much as I love all the music I play, otherwise I wouldn't play it. Um, seriously, um, you know, I wanted to touch on sex ed for, you mentioned diverse groups. And yes, yes. acknowledging my privilege as someone who is white, non-Aboriginal, I'm sure there are things I don't know. What are the sort of things that we need to do from your, you know, from what you've thought about, what you've seen, how, you know, if you, I don't want you to give away too many free samples either, but, <laughs> um, um, you know, seriously, what, what are the things? Because I admit that, you know, it's like, okay, there might be, I'm sure there are differences in background and things that could make a difference. I just don't know what I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think w one of the things that, that um, is really important to me is that the, the education that we're being delivered is being delivered by a diverse group of people so that the children and young people have a representation of themselves mm. in yeah. in the people who are teaching them uh, and people, you know, and the people who are teaching them have lived experience. So, you know, whether that's um, our lead educator is a uh, um, young Aboriginal woman and so when we work with Aboriginal communities, 
she is the person who will go into those spaces. Um, it is not for me. I'm not First Nations. It's not for me to go into those spaces. Um, uh, so diversity of disability, diversity of gender, diversity of sexuality, you know, we try and, um, you know, we have now a team of uh, 11, 12 educators and we try to ensure that the educators meet the diversity of the communities that we're working with. I think this is one of the most important things that we can do. Yeah. Um, and then it is uh, doing deep consultation with communities as well and asking, you know, young people and families, what is it that you need? Uh, what what is it that you want to see working with cultural liaison officers where we have schools with a high number of um, you know refugee and migrant communities um, you know to ensure that what we're delivering is uh, you know honouring of culture uh, and inclusive as well. Yeah. So, gee, you're listening. You you're doing allyship. You're saying what can we do and not do to being you know to support yeah. people beyond our own identity. Wow, you know, yeah, you know, sort of dry humour. Gee, oh, wow, who'd have thought it? You know, why don't more important people do it? Um, Mel's come in with another um, question. Um, how does Dion think the Me Too movement has impacted on our own deeply ingrained toxic culture here in Australia, and that we're seeing this week Australia's music industry is being exposed for its toxic behaviour? Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's um, so Me Too and music industry and toxic behaviour. Look, it's it's um, like so many things that become big media topics, it's polarising. Mm. So we've seen things like the Me Too movement, we've seen, um, you know, Grace Tame, we've seen Chanel Contos uh, you know, really allow people to speak up. Uh, it's It's broken down the shame that a lot of people who are victim survivors of sexual abuse or assault um, might feel and has allowed them to have a voice. But what we're also seeing, and I think that, um, and we better not finish on this, Sally, because it's not the positive note that we want to mm. end on, um, but we are also seeing really polarised conversations uh, from students who ha who feel that they have something to lose by us dismantling, you know, patriarchal structures. And so we're seeing um, what I would almost say is a radicalisation of a certain population of young men ah. and teenage boys uh, who are really pushing back on this notion. And I think that we need to talk about that uh, because we need to, you know, if we have young people in our lives, we need to be watching for these kinds of conversations. And what we're actually seeing in the classroom is um, teenage boys holding the absolute and utter belief that it is highly probable that they will be falsely accused of sexual assault before they turn 18 years old. And this is across demographics. Um, we're seeing this kind of belief that can only be coming from online spaces. So, so whilst Movements like Me Too and uh, Chanel Contos' petition are really, really empowering. We also need to prepare ourselves for the the backlash that's coming and has started to come from those spaces and be one step ahead of that. Okay. Wow. Um, all right. Um, well, yeah, it's it's there. And, you know, look, um, you know, sort of people always push back, as you say, if they feel they lose power. But I suppose that if I do want to end on a positive note and then we'd better wrap up and make way for freedom of species who'll be in any second, um, where do you see your own 
Um, I mean, we never know where our own journeys are going, but what would you perhaps like if you continue, if we go back to dreams, mm-hmm. um, what are your dreams for yourself? And, yep. you know, overall, let's finish on that note. Great. Um, well, I want, you know, I want body safety to be so much larger than myself. I, I feel so incredibly privileged every day to have gone from a space where I was almost unemployable to now offering employment to nearly 20 people. This is like, this is just blows me away that, that, um, that, you know, I have been part of that. Uh, I think at the moment, the, what, what I really am focusing on at the moment is, uh, that there needs to be a space for, um, for young people to have more, you know, young people who have experienced sexual assault or sexual abuse to have more agency in in what happens from there. At the moment, it's, it's still really disempowering. You know, a mm. young person um, discloses reports and it kind of is taken out of their hands. So, yeah, so I really want to, you know, obviously end sexual assault and sexual abuse but if it does occur I really want that power being put back um, you know into the hands of the person who's experienced that harm which is a pretty fair thing to ask and I think um, I think that's a great note on which to finish um, empower, you know powers are an overused but we'll say energized people moves mm. people Dion. Um, I've been looking forward to having you on the show for ages. It's been a huge, total pleasure. Um, and look, just keep it rolling. Keep in touch with 3CR and Out of the Pan. Thank you so much for being you and for what you do. And, um, well, yeah, humongous pleasure to have you on the show. <laughs> Thank you, Sally. It's been an honour to be here with you. Cool. We've got to leave it there. Um, racing out of here, better wait made for freedom of species. Um, and... Um, uh, the crew coming in at in a couple of minutes. Take it out today with um, a track from Amber, which is a nice way to finish, and Above the Clouds. Thanks for tuning in to Out of the Pan. I'm Sally Goldner. Catch you next week. Cry to